1: Welcome to The Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, The Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman.
2: Welcome to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Keith Fitzgerald. He is the chairman of the Fitzgerald Group. Also, he's the chief investment strategist for the Money Map Press. Welcome to The Money Answer Show, Keith.
3: Thank you for having me on. It's good to be
2: here. Let's just start with your background a little bit and, uh Kind of what has led you in the investment field up to where you are today? So, so people have a sense of your background.
3: You bet. I began my career approximately 20 something years ago, longer than I'd care to admit, working for Wilshire Associates in Santa Monica, California. Have been associated with finance or financial related things the entire time. Uh, was a CTA up until 2008. Then, uh, let my licenses expire so I could pursue my full-time avocation as a writer in, uh, stock market analyst and uh, take over the position of chief investment strategist at Money Map Press. And just describe briefly what Money Map Press is about, the services it offers, and its website. You bet. Uh, Money Morning is the website. Thank you very much for uh, allowing me to go over that. It is a generalized investment service advisory for investors located around the world. The goal is very much a long-term, balanced, prudent approach to investing, The concept is not to be in and out, but to take advantage of the massive global trends and money flows that we're seeing around the world uh, and put your money ahead of them when we can and then uh, avoid being clipped on the downside when something goes wrong.
2: And the website to find out about
3: it? The website to find out about it is very simple, moneymorning.com, just like you make your money in the morning, and that's uh, where we suggest people start.
2: So that's the free service, and then uh, there are paid services as well at MoneyMapPress.com. What what are some of the services uh, that people can can pay for?
3: The most common of them is called the Money Map Report, and that is a balanced portfolio, again, that uses the best of all of our uh, research analysis. Uh, It's myself, some of our senior writers looking at the markets themselves, identifying opportunities where we believe big capital flows are working in your favor as opposed to against you and uh, it, it talks all about the global geopolitical application of finance.
2: Okay, so let's start with a broad view, and then we're going to get some more specifics as we go. But let's kind of start with a broad view of kind of where we stand in the world economy. Some would say uh, things are going pretty well. The stock markets have been up. Interest rates are down. We've got the Federal Reserve providing stimulus. We have the federal government in the United States providing stimulus through its deficits. Uh, the housing market's gotten better. Car sales have been strong. Uh, commodity prices in general have been falling like oil prices um... so we're actually at a pretty uh... kind of
3: goldilocks
2: golden period here what would you say about that view of the world
3: well i think that that is a very optimistic approach i'm aware that there are a lot of people who have that opinion i'm not one of them i believe that the market is more fragile than it's ever been i believe that the risks are higher than we have ever seen the incessant fed meddling the uh... super mario's bailout in europe All these sorts of things are a massive, gigantic, uh, to use the word ginormous, uh, game of kick the can. This crisis continues to, uh, flow unabatedly with trillions of dollars kicked in and yet we are receiving only a percentage or two point of growth. For all of that money, and that to me spells risk. It does not spell opportunity, even though there is, uh, you know, the rising stock market. I think it's the illusion of growth that is being perpetuated. What that says to me, having lived through the mess that is Japan, uh, where I, I have a Japanese wife, I've been in that country at least part time every year since, uh, gosh, late 1980s. Um, you know, I've seen what they've done over there, and we are headed right down that same path. We have stimulus to which the market is not reacting favorably over time. Growth continues to be a function of consolidated expenses, not top-line revenue in most cases, and that's that concerns me greatly.
2: So some would say you should never fight the Fed, and uh, if you're being negative when the Fed is pouring all this money in, the European Central Bank is pouring a million, the Japanese and now the Chinese have a... Stimulus program. Central banks around the world are pouring money out like crazy, and it's suicide to try to fight the Feds all over the place and and go short in this kind of market.
3: Yeah, I think it is. You know, and and this is one of the things we have continually pounded the table about for the last six, eight, twelve months. Is you know, as long as the Fed is in this. Uncle Ben, you know, as much as I disagree with the man, he is not stupid. And what he wants is money flowing into the stock market. And, you know, people never thought in a million years that they would say, don't fight the Fed, and that meant the markets would continue to run higher. But that's exactly what we're happening. Everybody knows, or a lot of people in their right minds know, that stimulus is wrong. It never worked in recorded history. It won't work this time over a long period of time. Uh, yet the markets continue to rise. And I'll take that just as soon as, uh, you know, just as, just as much as the next guy will. But at the same time, I'm not going to set it and forget it either. I think the era of buy and hold is long gone. I think that investors who want to earn legitimately a return on their money yet have safety and security that goes with it need to gradually take advantage to sell into strength. They need to be doing things like raising trailing stops. They need to be consciously uh, sticking their their money and their toes in the water that is dominated by large multinational companies with established sales that are diversified by by geography with global brands that are recognized and in demand so that they have at least some sort of insulator if everything goes to heck in a handbasket.
2: So what would change things? I mean, the Federal Reserve has kept interest rates at zero for just about three years now, and they basically said they're going to keep it through the middle of 2015, maybe longer than that. Uh, why can't we just keep printing lots of money, pushing up the markets, uh, doing the same in Europe and in Asia? What is, what's the change? What's the pop, the bubble? Why would that not just continue on for a long, long time?
3: Well, I think that that's the politicians' hope, is eventually what they're doing is is they're, they're hoping to print enough money that eventually they stimulate growth and growth begins to work its way back through the economy. The problem with it is that they're hoping, just they're hoping, hoping, hoping that uh, they are simply not going to have uh, the problems hit on their watch. Eventually, you're going to have to pay this back, and there is going to be a capital market crisis, just like there's been in every major market that's ever tried what the Fed is trying today. We saw this in the Asian debt crisis. We saw this in South America. We saw this in Mexico. We see, you know, we've seen it in Europe in the past. Um, eventually, there's going to be a credit strike. People are simply going to say, we are so indebted that they're not going to give us any more money. Now, at what point that takes place, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to figure that out. But, you know, the laws of money are pretty clear in this this response. The only question is what's the tipping point. Isn't the
2: difference between us and, say, Greece, is that Greece couldn't print its way out of it because they don't control the euro, whereas we are printing ourselves out of it because we control the world's central bank reserve currency. As long as people keep accepting dollars, we can keep printing money. What's to stop that from happening as long as there's no other – a Reserve currency ready to take over?
3: Well, I again, I think that that's a fair statement, and you know you've hit the nail on the head. We can do this as long as the dollar is the world's reserve currency. Um, you know there's a group in Asia, you know China it is. People forget that they actually invented money, and with all of the problems that they've got, it's a numbers game. You're talking about one point three billion of them that's got three point one trillion dollars in reserves which have been built up you know, by trading with people like us and with Europe Europe, at some point in time, the Chinese are already making moves to inject the yuan into the global currency paradigm. Now, I'm not saying they're immediately going to summarily wake up one day and the yuan is going to be the currency, but over time they are establishing bilateral trade agreements directly denominated in yuan that bypass the entire traditional currency trading mechanism. That, to me, puts the dollar at risk.
2: Could you see another federal, another central bank reserve currency other than the dollar, maybe some basket of currencies or some something with gold in it? What would a potential alternative to the dollar be as a reserve
3: currency for the world? You know, I didn't used to think that was possible, admittedly. I really didn't as we headed into this crisis. But now as this crisis continues to drag on, um, yes, I do see this happening, and I see it, it somewhere down the road looking like a basket of currencies. It's probably going to be a few things. It's probably going to be uh, the dollar. It's probably going to include some component of the yuan, some component of the euro. Uh, I see maybe the Japanese yen, a uh, uh, Swiss franc in there, but I also see for the first time some sort of uh, hard asset-backed portion of this, whether that's collateralized with gold, silver oil, you know, I don't know the answer to that, but I do see it as a mixture of hard and fiat currencies.
2: So if that were to happen, how would that affect the United States situation? If we just couldn't print our way out with dollars, if we have this international kind of basket of currency, how would that affect what goes on
3: in the United States? Well, the implications clearly are not good in that sense, because, you know, if the dollar suddenly ceases to be the world's reserve currency, then people don't want the dollar. They sell the dollar. Uh, it becomes harder to do transactions in the dollar. Our cost of capital goes up. Our treasury has to uh, offer, excuse me, higher interest rates to entice people to purchase dollars. Um, uh, you know, I see that as a very, very messy situation. On the other hand, if we have a concerted effort from central bankers around the world, and I believe we will over the next few years as the situation continues to to deteriorate. I believe we will have a measured transition into elements of that. And, again, you know, is it two years, five years, ten years? I I don't know, but I do believe that that will be the course of action. We're beginning to see elements of that, for example, in Europe or in Spain. You're seeing, you know, currency limitations placed in Italy, for example, on cash transactions. You're seeing uh, restrictions on bank accounts, how much money they can move back and forth. You know, is that a precursor to our own future? It's not unimaginable any longer in my mind.
2: And so you don't think we're going to go back to a gold standard, though? That's not at all
1: possible.
3: I get that question a lot. Um, I don't believe we're going to see a true gold standard, but I do believe that it is going to play a role in how we collateralize fiat currencies. And, you know, we're already seeing the capital markets move in that area. We've seen in recent years uh, capital markets and trading firms beginning to accept uh, collateralized holdings for margin accounts in gold. We're beginning to see, you know, derivatives placed against precious metals, you know, to a greater degree than we have. And we're seeing central bankers, uh, you know, effectively buying gold, accumulating gold, because they have the same problems that individual investors do. It's no longer about the return of your money. It's the return, uh, excuse me, the return on your money. It's the return of your money. And they're, they're buying gold for the same reason that many individuals have been buying it, to hedge the value of the rest of their portfolio.
2: It's the return of the value of their money, actually, right? It was like they may get back dollars. Exactly. But the dollars are being value. Uh, devalued all the time. You're not actually getting back the same purchasing power.
3: Exactly. You, you've, you actually took the words out of my mouth. That's right.
2: Um, so if something like this were to happen, and we didn't go have a gold standard, but we had some kind of a basket of currencies, as you've described, would that be positive for the prices of gold and silver?
3: My belief is yes, because everything we know about those two metals, uh, one, you've got a, a demand in terms of silver, for example, as a part of an industrial metals component. So assuming there are still going to be factories and producers and things using silver on in an industrial capacity around the world, uh, then yes, that speaks to demand for silver, uh, in addition to its implications as a currency hedge. With regard to gold, You know That's less of an industrial metal, but there is still an awful lot of gold out there that is being viewed as a hedge for, uh, rightly or wrongly, inflation, but used as a hedge to collateralize the value of bond portfolios. It's being used to offset the drop in uh, currencies of of the traditional fiat set. Several years ago, for example, if you recall, people were making a big deal about uh, some of the Middle East wanting to take euros for their oil, the Chinese wanted uh, to start trading in yuan for it. Um, you know, there, there are rumors floating about we're going to do gold. People are starting to draw lines between how the Dow is priced in gold, how the S&P is priced in gold, how oil is priced in gold. And they're beginning to draw relationships between the value of that commodity and where the rest of the markets are. The jury still out in my mind as to how valid the statistics are, but, uh, you know, there's enough there that I think it's worth the consideration.
2: Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this week is Keith Fitzgerald, uh, Chairman of the Fitzgerald Group, and also the Chief Investment Strategist for Money Map Press. We'll be back after this.
0: Listen to The Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel.
4: If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Joke All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. Do you- Want to know what's
1: really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes
4: tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital thinking on the voice america business network each thursday at noon eastern and 9 a.m pacific time from the boardroom to you voice america business network
1: you've been listening to the money answer show with jordan goodman if you have a question for jordan or his guest please call us now at 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 now back to jordan
2: The Answer Show, this is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this uh, this hour is Keith Fitzgerald, uh, chairman of the Fitzgerald Group and also the chief investment strategist for Money Map Press. Welcome back to the show, Keith. Thanks again. Appreciate it. The big uh, sort of Damocles that's hanging over everybody right now is the fiscal cliff. Uh, As of current law, on January 1st, we have dramatic increases in capital gains rates and dividend rates, uh, estate tax rates. Uh, dramatic expenditure cuts in defense and non-defense spending. Uh, the national debt ceiling is going to be uh, expiring. It has to be raised at that time. All this is going to happen as we're blowing our January 1st uh, New Year's resolutions. <laughs> yeah. um, Isn't that uh, something in yeah. irony, huh? All that. So um, I guess we, how does one approach this as an investor? Are we going to go over the fiscal cliff? Will there be some kind of a compromise? Or, or what do you think is going to happen in the next two or two months or so here? Mm-hmm.
3: Boy, that is uh quite literally the trillion dollar question you know i i I see it not just as one fiscal cliff but actually three of them. I think that uh first one is clearly you know the the massive adjustment from tax and spending provisions. Those are the bush era tax cuts uh The second is actually the debt debacle you know we're going to have to deal with another two plus trillion dollars that's in the oven. Uh, the scary thing on that is, the, course, according to Lawrence Kotlikoff of Boston University, we're actually in the whole $222 trillion at the moment. So they're fighting over a rounding error when we've got, you know, not just a cliff, we've got an absolute chasm uh, facing us. And then the third thing is that I think politicians don't really understand that one or two hit the economy the way the theory, before the uh, theoretical limits of debt and capital hit. So as an investor, I think there's a couple things they need to do. I think if investors would be prudent and well-served to be especially cautious uh, right now, I wouldn't suggest that they'd be in a hurry to buy anything at the moment. Uh, I would be taking advantage of rebalancing if I had the opportunity to do so right now. That means selling in strength and not being a contrarian, but simply putting money to work in underweighted segments of the portfolio. Uh, many people, for example, still have yet to invest in resources, even though we've seen a tremendous run in those things uh, to date. Many people are continuing to play in the tech space and small unheard-of companies not realizing that those are two three four times as volatile as the broader markets so they are gambling when uh, they think they're investing and I think many of them who woke up in the dawn of uh, the dot bomb crash and again after 2007 realized two times that they've got to change their ways and many that I I see are not Uh, that's a disservice and finally I think people need to really take good hard look at bonds um, I am of the belief that this credit crisis will continue to deteriorate and that we will see 1.5% again on the 10-year. We will see even 1%. Uh, the real inflation rates will go, you know, the real, excuse me, the interest rates will drop negative, as we saw in Japan in the 90s. And uh, that's going to create a heck of a pickle. So people need to have those bonds just a little bit longer. But they do need to keep the duration under three years because they don't want to get bit if rates suddenly go up.
2: So you think we are going to go over the fiscal cliff? There will not be an agreement before January 1st? You
3: know, I wish I could be optimistic. I think if we do get an agreement, it's going to be something like a squirt gun at a gunfight or a Band-Aid in the surgery suite. Um, You know, I I don't believe that uh, we're going to see any kind of legislation enacted prior to January uh, 2013.
2: So if you were president, if you were running the situation, let's make you not only president but head of the Federal Reserve here, um, how would you have handled the situation? Obviously, you would have not have done quantitative easing. Uh, wouldn't you just put so much pain? You'd put the economy into a worldwide depression, and uh, you know that wouldn't be too much of a solution either.
3: Uh, no, that would be a terrible solution. Um, you know, were I in charge, uh, boy, that's a that's a tough question because there's a lot of things I would do. Uh, the first thing I would do is I would take a good hard look at the whole concept of survivability. If it's too big to fail, by very definition, it's too big to save. We have antitrust laws in this country. We've never used them. Uh, the regulators were asleep at the switch. I think that there are a number of things that they could have done headed into this crisis. We knew that the mortgages were being overinflated. We knew that derivatives were out of line as a result of the Commodity Modernization Act of 2000, the breakdown of Glass-Steagall in 97. Um, I would look in very short order to put those regs back on the books. I would uh, very clearly have a concerted effort. I would have Bernanke come forward saying, you know what, if you're trading in derivatives, the notional value by which uh, is between $650 trillion worldwide and $1.5 quadrillion. uh, I would say, you know what, any company trading in those products right now worldwide, the United States government will not back. I would force banks to choose between good old-fashioned commercial banking and investment banking. If you want to trade and be sexy and have a great time doing it, fine. Take your risk, but don't put the rest of the taxpayer base at risk. Don't put the worldwide consumer economy at risk. The history of of our world, of our money, is littered with the bones of dead financial institutions. There is no reason in the world why that should not have happened this time. And the faster we get the arteries cleaned, the sooner the patient can emerge from uh, the surgery. But and, you're, saying
2: uh, the Volcker Volcker was, you're saying that the Volcker rule basically—you're saying that the Volker rule that was put in uh, to, to spin off derivatives and prop- proprietary trading was a good thing, and that's going to solve it, basically.
3: Well, it's going to create an entirely new set of problems. For example, you know, if if they're going to bring the derivatives back into the exchanges. And now all of a sudden you're going to have to mark these things to market. You're going to have to, you know, basically trade them on margin, collateralize them. Most of the high quality assets, because the derivatives rules stipulate that you're going to have to collateralize with A grade treasury paper or A rated treasury paper or other, you know, suitable assets. Wall Street doesn't have enough of those on mind. So they've created yet another class of derivatives where they're magically going to wave their hands and transform subpar, uh, stuff into treasury-grade collateral, and then they're going to loan you these things and go off to the races again. So Wall Street is still up to its own tricks. And, uh, you know, this crisis has never been about a lack of liquidity, which is how uh, Bernanke is approaching it. This crisis began because there was too much money floating around, too much debt, and too much leverage. Eventually, you have to pay the piper.
2: So we're adding more leverage, more debt to the entire situation right now.
3: That's so, correct, and again, you know, this, is like a, this is like a drug addict that is getting a last fix. It feels really good at the time, but eventually there's going to be the pain of withdrawal, and I, you know, I don't know how you get around that. There is no easy way out. At some point, somewhere in our future, there are going to have to be some very, very unpalatable, very unpleasant, difficult decisions made. Now, whether the politicians can stave this off five, six, seven years from now, three years, two years, I don't know the answer to that. But eventually, history shows that capital markets will stage a revolt, and there will be effectively a buyer strike on this. We saw that in Asia, we saw it in South America, we saw it in Mexico, we saw it in parts of Europe. Uh, we're going to see it.
2: So, explain to me what that happens. Okay, we get the buyer strike. Does that mean interest rates go up? Correct. Uh, gold, rate- gold goes up. The stock market goes down. Austerity programs come in, revolution in the streets. What does that mean when you have that strike happening?
3: Well, that's exactly. You just outlined it. Uh, essentially, interest rates go up, and capital is forced to be allocated. That, what that's going to mean is that responsible businesses are going to come in and take over the assets of failed businesses. Uh, people say, oh, this is terrible. You can't let these things fail. Why not? Why can't you let businesses fail? People want success, but they forget that the very definition of success by implication includes failure. Not every business is successful, so this all gain, no pain, pop the bubble slowly is going to work for a time. But, you know, again, my fear is that uh, it's, it's somewhere down the line, maybe 2014, 2015, we're going to see something really, really rough and very unpleasant.
2: Okay, so assuming that's going to happen, how would you invest to take advantage of that?
3: Well, in the interim, we're left with a devil if you do, devil if you don't uh, situation. I believe that you have got to be in the market. That's what Bernanke wants. That's what central bankers want around the world. They have driven capital costs so low that uh, you really are looking at uh, no alternative. They want you to be in the market. Again, the theory is they're going to reinflate the assets to the point where something happens, growth is ignited, growth then trickles back into the consumer, consumer has weighed wages, higher disposable income, disposable income translates into purchasing power, here we go. We made a bet in this country that we would use housing, cheap transportation, and cheap resources as fuel, other countries after World War II made the bet that they would use manufacturing as their, uh, their their solution. That does not give us very much negotiating room when interest rates are low like they are now. In tight credit markets, it gives us a lot of power. But right now, it does not give us a lot of power.
2: So in the housing area particularly, do uh, you think we're creating a new housing bubble that will collapse again?
3: I don't know if collapse is the right word, but again, you know, one of the things that we haven't focused on yet or that I have not seen covered in, in any way, shape, or form substantively in the media yet is that what happens when interest rates do begin rising? Because people are establishing a value for an asset that's relatively illiquid. They don't trade a lot, and the entire housing market has been fueled by leverage to begin with. Uh, you know, it's enabled projects to be developed that wouldn't otherwise be paid for. Uh, we don't have the transition in real estate assets uh, other than changing value. So, you know, when you take a wheat field and you turn it into houses, you take houses, you turn them into office buildings, you take office buildings. You know, gradually we have a higher and better use concept. But many of the projects we have out there today. Uh, are still sitting empty. Cost of capital is still low. Yet we're not seeing the the boom in activity. We're certainly not seeing that change, except for the use of debt. That's very problematic. When the price of uh, of money goes up, the price of housing has to drop. Assuming you are going to have the same number of people continue to buy those assets, I'm not convinced we will.
2: If tax rates go up and the fiscal cliff, we go over the fiscal cliff, and tax rates on capital gains. So from 15% to, I guess, 24% when you count the healthcare tax, on dividends from 15% up to regular rates as high as 40% or so. How will that affect investors? Will they be selling stocks at the end of December in anticipation of that? And then after it goes into effect, how will that affect the, the uh, balance between capital gains and income-oriented stocks?
3: You know, Jordan, I I don't know. That's something I've done a lot of thinking about. I don't know that I actually know the answer to that yet. Uh, there is a lot of conjecture that those who hold a lot of dividends are going to sell. Um, My question is, if they do sell, what are they going to replace them with? Because, you know, the way I view taxes, uh, taxes are not necessarily a bad thing. Taxes are an indicator that you've had a successful year. Therefore, at some level, you ought to be glad you have to pay them. I'm not sure that people can replace that income with anything else right now. The, the taxation situation, depending on which side of the aisle you're on or which end of the income spectrum you're on, um, is is frankly downright hostile, and uh, you know there is nowhere else to go. So I think I think contrary to what the wisdom is on the street right now, people are actually going to hang on to a lot of those things.
2: Very good. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest today is Keith Fitzgerald, Chairman of the Fitzgerald Group and Chief Investment Strategist for Money Map Press.
4: Today's business marketplace is becoming increasingly global thanks to technologies that didn't even exist a few short years ago. Your business might be a startup or you might be one of the global 500. Either way, you're probably looking at customers and competitors in faraway regions. Listen for Global Reach with host Tay Revez as she brings together experts, ideas, and listeners to help you anywhere in the world. Global Reach is broadcast every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Keith Fitzgerald, chairman of the Fitzgerald Group and chief investment strategist of Money Map Press. Welcome back to the show, Keith.
3: Thanks again. Good to be here.
2: And again, tell them the website where they can find more about uh, your writings.
3: MoneyMorning.com.
2: And that's a free service, and then it kind of leads to other paid services if you're interested.
3: That is correct. If you decide you like what we have to say and you'd like to give us a shot, uh, there's no pressure. It is free. Please join the party. We are irreverent. We have a lot of fun, and we call them like we see them. We're not always right, but that's not the point.
2: Um, Let's talk about the kind of continuum between inflation and deflation. Some would say that all the money printing that's going on um, is is clearly setting the signs for hyperinflation in the future. You just can't keep printing this amount of money without eventually getting inflation once velocity picks up. Others say uh, that there's actually the deflationary forces are dragging us down. You have demographics that are de- deflationary. So where do you stand on the spectrum of inflation versus deflation and what are the investment implications of that?
3: I would rather prepare for inflation than deflation at this stage of the game. I think that the, by its very definition, the stimulative input, the printing of money, you know, even if they don't call it that, the quantitative easing, whatever, you know, when things are bad enough, you've got to use euphemisms. You know, they really stink, and uh, you know, I'd rather be preparing for the possibility of inflation than deflation at the moment. And that, to me, that's uh, that's use of tax exempt bonds, that's inflation indexed securities. Uh, there 's a number of things where you know you can you can take steps as an individual investor, get your hands on your cash sooner and reinvest it uh, faster than you would need otherwise.
2: once it gets started, once inflation gets started, the federal Reserve says well they 'll just raise rates and snuff it out Is, there, is that not correct that 's what they 've always done in the past.
3: Well, again, I think this is great theory, but you know what in their playbook has been correct to date? Uh, you know, they they said we're going to produce a stimulus and we're going to instantly have our retirement, you know, our, our economy back off to uh, the races. That hasn't happened. They've had several stimulative programs, each one of which is impacting the markets less and less. Uh, that hasn't worked. They haven't understood the nature of the derivatives as they're traded. I haven't seen uh, Bernanke reference effectively. Uh, or do anything he can to to really get a handle on how Wall Street does its thing. And Wall Street likes that. They want to be left alone. They love complicated financial markets because they can trade. And by implication, because of the tear down the Glass-Steagall, they've got the implicit backing of the federal government right now to do it. It's a one-way bet. Why wouldn't they like that?
2: So what is the possibility of deflation? I mean, lately you've been seeing, for example, uh, the austerity programs in Greece and Spain uh, bringing down oil prices and bringing down copper prices and, Generally, a feeling that the economy, and even the IMF, had a recent uh, uh, report saying that economic growth is going to be slower, near recession. That would tend to argue that that deflation is a big possibility as well. What do you think of that?
3: I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, I would push back on it like this: Um, you know, for things that are discretionary products then yes, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I think what the IMF is missing is that there are certain things in the world, I call them needs versus wants. There are certain things that the world needs right now that uh, are going to obviate that discussion or change that discussion in ways that they haven't yet begun to contemplate. For example, people say growth is going to slow down because uh, energy demand is going to go down. Well, energy demand is going to go down to a certain point, but the reality of the situation is we have a more populated world. We have higher and higher net energy use every single year. The gains in efficiency that we're seeing in the civilized first-tier countries, uh, you're seeing in, in made up in areas like China, for example, parts of South America, the, the parts of Africa and the Middle East, where they've never had cheap energy to begin with. So they don't care they're more interested in having the gasoline to run the pump that provides the power for the village to turn on the light bulbs or pump the water for the crops. You know, that's a a very different pricing dynamic. So I don't think energy, you know, is going to go down to the $30 a barrel that, you know, I'm hearing some extreme analysts talk about.
2: So if you're more worried about inflation and deflation – uh, what would be your main investment? Uh, I mean, for example, would gold and silver be a, a core part of your portfolio? And if so, how much of a portfolio would you put into gold and silver?
3: Well, that varies obviously by individual, their stage of life, their income, you know, and I, I can't advise uh, not knowing the individual proclivities or risk tolerances of all the investors that are listening. Um, that would be a very, a big disservice to them. But what I will say is that studies show that meaningful diversification into a portfolio can happen with as little as five, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% of assets, investable assets, held into, uh, non-correlated or, or those types of things. And to me, that's enough. I don't see the need to go all in. I think it's a foolish bet to go all in on anything right now. I hear a lot of the gold bugs doing that. And, you know, they weren't very happy when gold dropped quite a bit here recently.
2: So how would you play gold? Would you want to own physical bars, or would you do the exchange-traded funds, gold-mining shares? What would be your favorite way to play gold and silver?
3: Again, it depends on the individual. My personal preference is to own some of the ETFs. Um, I think that you don't have the concerns about storing physical bars. You don't have the insurance-related problems. It's certainly not. For example, I talked to one gentleman who literally buried his gold in a fence post, and then Katrina hit. And so he had a substantial portion of his life savings. He pulled me aside one day at a conference and said, You know, it's 30 miles out in the Gulf of New Mexico right now, or Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> uh, you know, and that didn't It didn't work out too well. <clears> no, and he said, You know, he said, I will never, ever, ever buy physical gold ever again. Um, so, you know, you've got extremes on both sides of things. But personally, I prefer the ETFs at the moment. And uh, how about the, some of the gold mining shares? That's an interesting one to me, you know, from a trading perspective, those are interesting, but, you know, the problem there is that any type you've got, anytime you've got a mining company, that company is potentially subjected to the same inflationary and operational concerns that any other business is, and, you know, you don't know how much the cost of electricity, what it's going to take to get out of the ground, can they move it to market. Uh, can they hedge the cost of their production? There's a whole host of variables that come into play. So a lot of people like them. I think that's great. I'd rather stick with the metal itself.
2: Okay. Um, also, in the we've we been talking about how interest rates are being kept incredibly low, so savers are really being punished by earning nothing on their CDs and money market funds and so on. Yes, they are.
3: You the government is here to help. I've, I've had enough help. How about you?
2: So for people who are in that circumstance who are getting nothing on their so-called safe investments. What would you recommend for retirees and people who live off of their investments for income? Uh, obviously, they can't keep it in CDs and money funds when they're earning nothing. What, what kind of higher income strategies uh, would you recommend?
3: Well, it's very, very tough to find quality, safe yield because you know the safety is the issue. You know, are there preferred stocks that they can get in and have hybrid fixed income slash appreciation potential? Uh, Are they comfortable moving into the high dividend plays that are offered by uh, some of the master limited partnerships and the taxation consequences there? Do they have enough uh, diversification that they can put some of their things into uh, tax-exempt munis? Are they uh, able to get treasury inflation-protected securities into the mix? You know, to me, having the income and the cash is about having a blend of securities at the moment. And whether those securities are traditional or they're fixed income, remains to be seen by the individual.
2: One area where you can get some pretty good yields is energy-related stocks, uh, what Very used to be so. the, the income trusts up in Canada and, and other. Yep. Do you like uh, energy and do you think oil prices will go back up and, and help those stocks and well, as well as get income?
3: Yeah, and, you know, and you've hit on an interesting point. Uh, I'm not so concerned about the energy players themselves as I am about the guys who move it. Uh, I particularly like and am particularly keen on uh, the pipeline companies, for example, because you know, no matter what's happening with the underlying price of the actual commodity, natural gas or oil, for example, they have a very simple business. Everybody understands it. You cram stuff in a pipe at one end, you take it out at the other end, and you charge effectively a toll for moving it. Those partnership type uh, uh, arrangements can kick off significant amounts of dividend. You know, four, five, six, seven percent, maybe even more, depending on what you're buying. Um, but again, the, the thing there is now you're talking about very real assets, operating businesses uh, that are largely indifferent to the price of the underlying asset.
2: So what would be? These are MLPs you're talking about. What would be some of your favorite MLPs?
3: Well, my personal one, in the interest of full disclosure, is Kinder Morgan Partners. And, uh, you know, they've got a well-into-the-double-digit compounding annual growth rate for many, many years. They're one of the largest, uh, if not the largest in the United States, I haven't looked in a little while, but 30,000 miles, I think, of pipelines. And they continue to just chug right ahead. Last time I checked, they don't have corporate jets. They don't have their names on stadiums. They don't play with derivatives. Uh, they really run a very clean, solid business. And for that reason, you know, I place my own personal assets there.
2: So that's KMP. Is that the symbol for that one? Mm-hmm. And uh, would there be one more MLP you would
3: like in addition to Kinder Morgan? Uh, Yes, there there are a couple of them. The names are just going to not roll off the top of my head at the moment. Uh, You have caught me flat-footed.
2: That's okay. That's okay. How about some of the mutual funds that have a diversified portfolio of MLPs?
3: There are a number of those but I historically have stayed away from those. When it comes to MLPs I prefer to buy directly and I tend to uh I tend to concentrate on one or two that I think are very quality. Uh, Magellan, that's the other one. My name was was coming off the uh
2: Magellan
3: Midstream, MMP. Yeah. yeah. Oh. And, uh, you know, so I tend to buy directly on that. I think the mutual funds, you know, that's great. You get a lot of input, but then you also have to deal with a management fee. And, and to me, when it comes to these things, if you get a good operator, uh, I, I would just assume cut out the middleman. I would rather not have a fund. I'd rather have direct exposure.
2: Now, these have become very, very popular, these MLPs. There's a lot of new ones coming out all the time. Is yep. this becoming a bubble in itself? Are you concerned they're becoming too popular?
3: You know, that's one of those things that if it goes down, I am very happy to buy more. Uh, So I really, again, speaking personally, am price indifferent to that, Uh, I would just assume have them go down because then I can buy more and I can load up. My expectation is that energy prices are going to be far higher. I think the demand is going to continue to go up, and I think the prices that are getting charged for moving this energy are going to go up with it. So uh... over time i'm looking for my dividends to grow and i'm i'm looking to take advantage of the compound uh... power growth there
2: specifically in the in natural gas area natural gas prices have been very low they've come up a little bit from maybe two to three dollars uh, do you think uh... with the demand for natural gas increasing even though we've got more supply natural gas prices will be rising
3: that's a tough one Um i don't ex I-, I did at one point expect the prices of natural gas to go up but we have seen a lot more supply come online than i thought was possible so the prices have remained lower longer than I thought was possible. So I'm just kind of waiting that one out.
2: There are some people that are touting the ability of us to, to export uh, natural gas to these LNG terminals. Is, is
3: that something you think has a lot of promise? Yes, I do. Uh, the problem we have there, you know, if you look, for example, you look at Japan uh, with the nuclear disaster there, and that's a country uh, that I have spent many, many years in and love deeply. So it just it really troubles me. But from an opportunity standpoint, after the uh, after the horrendous disaster at Fukushima and the tsunami, there is you know they've only got two out of their 54 nuclear reactors running. They are importing tremendous amounts of LNG. They're importing coal. They're importing anything they can get their hands on to burn. And you know if we can get over this concept of not in my backyard, we have a logical opportunity to build a lot more of these LNG ports and to run pipelines to them and to have something very very profitable as a nat- a national strategic asset uh... Um, but you know americans have a very funny concept we love that we want cheap energy we love that concept but everybody's got this not in my backyard piece and it's going to affect us with energy it's ultimately going to affect us with water as well
2: are there some investment plays on exporting lng that you play not at
3: the moment um, I, you know i'm looking very carefully at uh... some of the shipping companies but uh... you know here again the markets are punishing them because i don't think the price dynamics are well understood if i can find uh you know something like a tk partners or something to that effect um, where i can get my hands on it cheap enough then i think that that's a compelling uh, something compelling to own going forward because again you've got a large enough payout but what it comes down to is stability long term contracts on the ships you want to make sure you don't have a lot of variability in the contracts and the company if it does carry a lot of debt and shipping companies typically do uh, you want to make sure that that debt is offset by the length uh, and service time of their fleet so it's fully utilized and they're moving those fleets. They're not sitting uh, empty somewhere.
4: Very good.
2: Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Keith Fitzgerald. He's the chairman of the Fitzgerald Group and chief investment strategist for Money Map Press. Uh, you can subscribe to their free uh, newsletter at moneymorning.com. We'll be back after this.
0: 7 p.m. Eastern to the Voice America Sports Channel.
4: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
1: You've been listening to the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Keith Fitzgerald, chairman of the Fitzgerald Group and chief investment strategist for Money Map Press. You can find out more about him at a free newsletter he puts out called MoneyMorning.com. Welcome back to the show, Keith. Good to be back. You were saying uh, one way to play this volatile environment we have coming up is to go into large multinational companies that pay dividends. Uh, just give us a name or two of some of your favorite companies that would be resistant to all the volatility you're talking about.
3: Sure. I mean, you know, no – but understand with the caveat, obviously, Jordan, that no company is going to be perfectly flawlessly resistant to the volatility. The trick is looking for those companies that are going to survive it. And so, you know, this, for example, is a company like Deere. It's, uh, it's ABB out of Zurich. It's Raytheon, General Electric, uh, Johnson & Johnson, all the usual suspects. Where they've got big, identifiable, global brands, typically large payouts, experienced management, and uh, real solid longevity with a history of of paying those dividends, no matter whether thick or thin times.
2: So even though the things you're talking about, like this 2015, where you know the dollar loses its value and. Uh, inflation takes off, they'll do, you're saying, relatively well. They won't be soaring, but they'll do better than other things. Is what
3: you're saying. My expectation is that they'll do better. And the reason I say that is that history favors them to do better.
2: Yeah. Okay, let's go to some specific areas of the world now. Um And Europe is the first one. Um, we've got the European Central Bank saying they've got the whole thing under control. Uh They're bailing out Spain and uh, Greece, uh, which are agreeing to these austerity programs. Uh, Italy is doing austerity. So, so what's the problem? Don't they have it completely under control?
3: <laughs> well, the fact that they think they have it under control is, is, you know, bureaucratic speak for almost a guarantee that they haven't got a clue. Uh, my opinion, having just returned from Italy and in a quick trip into Germany on the way, uh, is that no, they don't have it under control. I think that the amount of debt that is coming loose in, in Spain, Italy's up next. Uh, far exceeds the value of the bailout fund. I think that they are using the, what they've really said, what Super Mario said, was, hey, we're going to step up. Instead of just buying terrible banks, we're now going to begin buying terrible sovereign debt and banks. And the irony is that much of the debt came from bad banks to begin with. So really what the ECB is doing and they're saying, oh, we're going to we're going to uh, sterilize it because we're going to offset deposits from you know from these trading firms and derivatives, et cetera. They're really recycling their own money. You know, this either looks like a giant whirlpool or a toilet bowl, depending on your perspective.
2: <laughs> so, what is the end game here? I mean, do the the markets lose faith in the euro, or does Greece default and they kick it out of the euro, or kind of what's the next step here?
3: Well, the responsible thing would have been to kick Greece out of the euro at the beginning to say, hey, we're done, we're going to demonstrate some backbone here, you guys violated your rules, and out you go. Um, But again, you know, no politician over there wants to make that kind of tough decision. And, you know, rightfully so. They're going to have rioting in the streets. They're going to have that anyway. But, you know, the danger is in trying to continue this illusion of growth and stability is that it's really going to just simply get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that the Europeans are going to be shocked when, at the end of the day, they realize how much money it 's going to take to ultimately stabilize spain it 's ultimately going to take to stabilize Italy then they're going to, derivative traders are going to get bored they 're going to turn their attention to France ultimately they 're going to turn their attention to the euro itself and then, when they get really restless, you know my expectation is they 'll go after either the yen and/ or the dollar
2: so what does that mean? The value of the euro will fall dramatically, and the euro will break up as a currency I mean what, how does that?
3: I think we see a two-speed euro. We have the haves and have-nots. I think the core nations become the ones that are the haves. That's going to be led by Germany. I think France will do everything it can to latch on to Germany, right, wrong, indifferent. They'll even even make friends with them, so to speak. Um, But I I do see a two-speed economy developing. I see the periphery going its own way, and I see recapitalization of portions of the euro. We may even see a split euro, if you can imagine that.
2: Let's quickly move to uh, China. China's had this incredible growth record. They're growing at 10%, 11%. Now yep. maybe it's half that, but they're still doing these massive stimulus programs. They don't have to pass it through Congress. They just start building roads and bridges and airports and so on. What, yeah, what is your outlook for China? A
3: communist in that sense, yes.
2: It, it is easier; You don't have to deal with all this gridlock that we have. What, yep. what is your outlook for China? On the other hand, some people are very worried that there's a bubble there in real estate and uh, they can have a big, a hard landing. What is your view on China?
3: Well, you know, those people who say, is it going to be a hard landing or a soft landing, you know, my response to them is, where the heck have you guys been? You know, for the last four years, they've had a soft landing. And, you know, they've they've tapped on the brakes. They've got inflation. It's a problem. They know it. They're addressing it. Uh, their real estate, they know that's a problem. They're working on it. And, you know, people forget that we are we're so interested to apply Western metrics to their economy that we forget that they run their economy very, very differently than we do. Still, that having been said, you know, if we look to our own history, in the last hundred years, we've had two world wars, several global uh, military conflicts, an assassination, multiple recessions, a Great Depression, and the Dow still returned 22,000 percent or something like that. Uh, China is going to have some problems. The, the bloom is off the rose. To me, that smells like a buying opportunity for long-term investors. I'm not so sure about the short-term, but uh, if you've got the patience and you can weigh in on the power of the Chinese consumer, ultimately, uh, chances are you'll be more rewarded. It's easier, as Jim Rogers put it, to become a millionaire in Asia than it is to become a millionaire in the United States.
2: So how would you play that? What kind of Chinese stocks or mutual funds or ETFs would you play for the long-term investing in China, as you just talked about?
3: Well, I actually, right now, given the short-term problems in China, I would actually go with the because-of-China investments. I would go right back after those same big, globally-diversified companies that we were talking about, because they know in order to get growth, you've got to go east. And so, company like ABB, for example, out of Zurich, has been in China since the beginning of the last century. It derives a huge portion of its revenue there, and its growth, and its electrical contracts from there. Something as simple as Pepsi and Coke. You know, the markets are expanding very, very rapidly there. There's still many consumers who have never seen those products, who are just beginning to discover those products. So I would rather invest with the security and financial transparency of a Western corporation doing business in China than actually a Chinese stock at this point.
2: And as we close, we have a little bit of an election coming up in the United States here. What difference would it make if Romney or Obama got reelected as far as the, the path forward as you're describing it here?
3: Boy, I think the psychology of the elections has changed tremendously, Jordan. I think it used to be that we voted in this country for the candidate likely to make the biggest improvements and move us ahead as a nation. I think given that we have huge swaths of our country paying no taxes whatsoever and who are involved in various government programs, And regardless of what the percentage actually is, we have more people than we've ever had before in unfortunate, dire economic straits. That changes the psychology of the election to who's least likely to interfere with my handouts. And uh, I think that that's a very, very different scenario. Do I know who's going to win? I haven't got a clue. Do I think the problem is the president? No, because the average tenure of president is going to be one, maybe two terms at most. On the other hand, you've got members of Congress that have been there 25, 26, 27, 30 years. If you look at the cycles of the markets, which are 17 to 21 years at length, that says Congress is a lot more problematic for the direction of the market than the actual president.
2: Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Keith Fitzgerald, chairman of the Fitzgerald Group and the chief investment strategist at Money Map Press. Uh, You can find out more about his newsletter at at the free newsletter, moneymorning.com or moneymappress.com to find out more about uh, what he does. So thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer
3: Show, Keith. It's my pleasure. Thank you very, very much.
2: Thank you, and we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now.
1: Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.
4: What do you think of the price of gas these days?
1: I can't take this!
4: How'd you like to never have to pay for gas again? Ever? Yes! Join a group that helps people-